it really works. And you don't have to go under the surgeon's knife and you don't have to take medicines that have all kinds of known and unknown side effects. And you don't have to cease and desist from whatever it is you love to do. You just have to do the yoga. Welcome to Guys Talking Yoga, a podcast created to help men get into yoga by sharing the stories and success of other guys. I'm your host, Derek Vanderwalker, and today's guest is Dr. Lauren Fishman. Dr. Fishman is a physiatrist with a private practice in Manhattan, and he's also a professor at Columbia University Medical School, where he teaches rehabilitation and regenerative medicine. While traveling in India in the 1970s, he came across a copy of BKS Iyengar's Light on Yoga and was so intrigued, he traveled a couple hundred miles to meet the author who ultimately inspired him to not only learn yoga, but use it to help heal people. Since then, Lauren has become a world-recognized pioneer in the treatment of low back pain, piriformis syndrome, osteoporosis, rotator cuff tear, and other conditions. He's authored or edited nearly 100 academic articles and written many books about yoga and medical conditions. But most importantly, in all of his years of experience and research in medical practice, he hasn't found anything that compares to the healing powers of yoga. So Dr. Lauren Fishman, Welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. Before we get into all the things that you're doing with yoga, tell us a little about who you are and your connection with yoga. Okay. I'm a physiatrist. I'm a doctor of physical medicine and rehab. I teach up at Columbia. I have an advanced degree from Oxford in England where I studied philosophy. I edited a journal, written about 100 papers, and I do yoga every day. When my kids were young, I did it at 5.30 in the morning, and here we are. My kids are in their 30s and 40s. I'm still doing it every morning at 5.30. And uh, I meditate twice a day. The difference between meditating once a day and twice a day is like the difference between walking on one foot or walking on two feet. It really makes a difference in your level of compassion, self-knowledge, and just plain relaxation to do it twice a day. Yeah, that's a great point. It's probably not the thought you were going in, but I noticed when I play hockey twice a week, I'm much better than, than just playing <laughs> hockey once a week. So there's something about repetition yeah. and frequency, right? Strength in numbers. Something happens. Yeah. That's right. So it's great having you on this show. I've been in the yoga community for 20 years, much more so in the last 10 years, a bigger reader about yoga. And your name within the yoga and emerging science around yoga is a fairly well-known one. You are a physiatrist, is that correct? I mean, now I teach up at Columbia and I have a private practice in Manhattan. That's all I'm doing at the moment. Okay, and what, what does a physiatrist do? For those who are listening who've not had the pleasure of working with a physiatrist <laughs> yet. The pleasure, the misfortune and the pleasure. Well, we preside over recovery. That's what we really do. And sometimes it's like presiding over the birth of a baby. You don't have to do a darn thing. You just keep the wrong things from not happening. You keep the wrong things out of the picture. Sometimes it's a lot more than that. It's uh, medical orthopedics. We don't do surgery, but we do all kinds of things besides surgery for orthopedic ends. And we do mostly peripheral neurology, though the head of my department up at Columbia, Joel Stein, is using rehabilitation methods to regenerate neurons in the brain. Wow. Like neuroplasticity through rehabilitation. And the ability of neurons to go on multiplying and recruiting themselves into new functions. Yeah, which is plasticity. So someone goes to a physiatrist if they've got 
uh, back issues or injuries or rehabilitation, or as maybe something they've done as a post-op experience coming out of surgery, learning how to move again and that sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Got it. So tell us a little bit about how and when and where you got into yoga, because I believe you got into (laughs) yoga before your medical career. That's right. That's true. I was thinking about that question. I'll try to make it really brief. When I was at Oxford studying foundations of mathematics, I ran into a book by a man named Patanjali, who did the first book on grammar. Seems to me that mathematics comes from a place very close to where grammar comes from. You know, rules, language, nobody does math who doesn't know language, and uh, well-formed sentences and well-formed equations. And he also wrote the Yoga Sutras. He was also a physician, by the way, and I just, I cottoned on to him and I wanted to go to India to learn Sanskrit, to read Patanjali in the original, see what was really going on in this guy. Once I was in India, I realized I was never going to learn Sanskrit as well as the average three-year-old lived in Bombay. And so I just started looking for people that were, you know, liberated to a greater or lesser extent. And I found many all over India, in Dulia, in Srinagar, in Mumbai, all over the place. And I learned from them. Then my girlfriend at the time, before I was married, she looked at Iyengar's book that was handed to me by an English drug addict in Bombay and said, here, man, this is for you. And and it was head and shoulders above any yoga I'd ever seen. And so I started doing every pose I could in the book. How often? Twice a day, morning and night. And there wasn't very many poses in the book I could do at the time, but I did the best I could. And she said, hey, look, he's only a couple of hundred miles away. So within a week, we were leaping on a train and going to see Mr. Iyengar, knocked on his door. He was rather gruff. He said, "Uh, why are you here? I said, I want to learn your yoga. He said, why do you want to learn my yoga? I said, because I want to heal. He challenged me again. He said, you want to heal? I said, yes. He said, that's my great thing. Come on in. And I, had, I rented a room in a hotel to be there, and I just kept the room for a year and went to see him every day. And then the die was cast. I just, he was a wonderfully intelligent and generous, understanding man. So this was all in the 1970s when you went over to India? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So it's interesting. A lot of guys get into yoga because their back is killing them. But a lot of people in general, not just guys, but people move into yoga because life has put some challenge on them some adversity. So whether it's a broken heart or a career that's gone to the gutter or someone close to you has passed, and there's just people who seek out yoga for various different reasons. And I think there's a desire, a self-knowing to wanting to have some agency and control over their suffering or understand their suffering. They may not consciously know that, but that is sort of what takes you there in some way or another. No, you're so right. You're so right. I mean, yoga, it offers solace at the same time, it offers you a ladder up from where you are. So what could connect something that's sinking you down so you need solace and something that raises you up? And there's only one thing you can think of, and that's you, the person, the self, if you will. And that's where yoga gets there. Yep. It's like the Joseph Campbell quote, the way out is the way in. <laughs> so you got into yoga in the 70s, and then you got into your medical career. So let's fast forward a little bit to at what point did you start incorporating aspects of yoga into physiatry and the rehabilitation medicine that you were practicing? Right away. I was in this Harvard Tufts program. And the minute I saw the big gyms that these universities had, my mouth watered. I realized I could teach yoga there. I had fellow medical students and nurses and physicians and interns, little classes I gave there. It was a different era, Derek. 
someone came to you as a patient, say three or four years later, I'm in practice, and I'm actually using a yoga method and a yoga pose, you couldn't say it. If you said, I'm giving you some yoga, they'd walk out and say, that guy's a quack. He gave me yoga. And over the years, it's changed in two ways. First, we're more permissive. Acupuncture, Tuina, all those things are much more in the medical mainstream than ever before. And at the same time, yoga has become much more empirically oriented. I gave a talk in California years ago, and I said, this is the way to do something. And they objected. They said, but that's not what my guru said. And I said, well, look, you have a guru because you want to know the truth. And if your guru is not respecting these means of gathering truth, science, then uh, you have to ask yourself, <laughs> where is he getting his data? Right. And the unfortunate truth is usually he's getting the data from his guru. And it goes back that way as far as you want to trace it. And that's not science. Even Iyengar, for all the amazing things that he created and brought to the Western world, there's now stuff that people are realizing that Iyengar was doing that may not be best for everybody out there. So there's a, there's a constant refinement on this knowledge. And we're at this interesting place now where the Eastern and Western approaches to dealing with health and wellness are starting to merge together. So in the beginning, you had a lot of pushback initially from you know, either from patients or other colleagues and peers in the medical community sort of saying like, yeah, the, this is nothing's founded here. It's all a bunch of whatever. Smoke and mirrors. Yeah. So how would you articulate now where the medical community is on incorporating yoga? Because there's a couple of thoughts I have around that. Okay. Well, first, let me say, Mr. Angar himself was always learning to Sometimes he'd say, you do something like this, or you bring your arms up. Sometimes he would say, no, 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 bring your head back. I mean, he was always experimenting himself. So it's more the spirit of what he did rather than what he did that makes a difference. He was highly empirical, and he used himself as a lab. There's no question about it. But he also said things like this, my body is my temple, my asana are my prayer. He was a, a very orthodox Hindu. And he, he lived his life that way. He really did, in spite of all his international and cosmopolitan aspects. So the medical community today is, is not in such a different spot from where Iyengar was at. We are experimenting. The difference is that NIH has recognized yoga as a legitimate path of inquiry. So I've got a couple of grants from the NIH, and I just I finished one about a year ago. And they're willing to put significant support behind figuring out what yoga does. And, and even more interesting for me and for them, I think, is why. They're seeing the benefits. They know it's effective. They know it's innocuous. They know it's inexpensive. And they know, as you've said, the side effects are actually good for you too. <laughs> That's right. And so like if you take a field like scoliosis, for example, scoliosis has dominated by surgeons, not because they're imperialists particularly, but because nothing else has been shown to work. 90% of the people with scoliosis are, are children now, since they're almost all who have what's called idiopathic scoliosis, which means, so it's a word doctors use to disguise their ignorance. We don't know why scoliosis. No good reason, scoliosis. And the parents and the kids are reduced to this terrible position of watching all you can do is get another x-ray in six months. Oh, what is it now? You're, you're totally unable to do things. So all kinds of methods have grown up, which are of dubious value. 
the Schroth method, some people will swear by it, but God knows how many patients I have who've tried it and failed, and it's hours a day. It's exhausting. And then there's the clear method, and the chiropractors have the pettibone method. And there are all, all kinds of subsidiary methods that no one's heard of except the people that propose them, the proponents, you know, and braces, which are, in spite of a very good paper by Weinstein about 20 years ago up at Harvard, Again, the best reports on this are that there are two schools of thought. They work. The other schools, they don't work. The, the surgery is a big deal. I mean, expense costs about $160,000. The expense to the child is the child has to lie there for a long time. There are new surgical methods, but they too have complications, side effects, and dangers. So yoga is almost free. You just do it every day yourself, and they haven't found a way to tax it yet, so it's pretty free. <laughs> and it's, as you say, innocuous. It hurts no one. The side effects are things like better balance, better range of motion, better posture. These are the terrible side effects of yoga. And you can do it when you're nine years old. No, you're not hurting anything. We have an NIH study right now. It's a grant study. Children from 14 to 18, where we're using yoga to strengthen the side that's too weak in the scoliosis and botulinum toxin to weaken the side that's too strong. And these kids are getting anywhere from, well, the worst case got five degrees better in three weeks. The best case got 16 degrees better in three weeks. So let me just sort of re revisit that. So you, scoliosis, there's a curvature of the spine. Mm -hmm. The concave side is typically shorter, tighter, stronger muscles that have probably been that way for a long time. You got it. The weaker side, so think of the outer part of a C, the convex side, those muscles are sort of long and weak, and they pretty much have just shut down because the other side is so dominant. Absolutely right. And Derek, for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, I do not know, people got it all wrong because- the ribs splay out on the convex side, and then they spread the soft tissues, the muscles, the skin, and then they migrate back into the space created by their separation. So that side, it's big, it's hard. Isn't that the strong side? Nothing could be further from the truth. That's the hollow side. That skin is stretched like the skin of a drum. It's the other side, it's the concave side that is the stronger side. So I had a bit of scoliosis a few years ago. I mean, it could have been the fact of just years of being a predominantly righty lacrosse player, righty hockey player, righty golfer, righty everything, right? Just just constant other side. But I also had this deep psoas injury. And the psoas injury was was so much trauma pulling down on one side that it affected my pelvis, my lower back, it affected my gait, it affected everything. And when things got locked down, the ribs stopped moving. So over time... As I've been able to do more yoga, what I noticed in my body was if you're able to increase blood flow and awareness throughout your body, slowly over time, sort of like when you're in a weak cell zone area and you only got one bar, I feel like there's parts of your body that don't have a strong signal. And if you can slowly work into those places and you can increase blood flow, the tissue starts to open up, the body becomes more aware, you become more supple and you slowly kind of work through the other dead zones where there's a low signal in your body. And pretty soon I started to, and this was over several years, slowly started to get more awareness and agency within my spine, within my rib cage. And all of that, all of that helped me sort of course correct the mild scoliosis that I had. And I feel like that is an approach that I now use with the rest of my body. So if I've got a tight right foot from an old Achilles issue, 
I'm starting to work into those places. And this is what's really amazing is that you can change the shape of your body. You can change your posture and you can have control and start to design how you want to move. You're alluding to something. By the way, the psoas is one of the muscles we inject, but the scoliosis is a powerful mover in there. I looked up in the ancient Greek, what does psoas come from? And it's the name for that muscle. There, it, nothing is revealed. They know that there, nothing in the literature will tell you any deeper meaning to it. But I must say, it sounds like the Greek word suxos, which means soul. It's something like your very center, I think. Anyway. Uh, well, I, I tell you, from having had trauma in my psoas, it did feel like literally the, the, the back room of my soul because the psoas attaches to your upper lumbar, lower thoracic. But I really feel those fibers continue up very closely into the back of your diaphragm. They do. That, they're called C-R-U-R-A, Karura, and they intermingle a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's another quote from somebody or other. It said, yoga is so good at getting to know who you are. Say, it's paradoxical, but it's only when you get to know who you are that you can change. It's physically too. What is my ankle like? You really get to know who you are in other ways, too, spiritually, your personality, your character, but also you get to know how your knuckles work. Yeah. And having that awareness in your body and knowing your body. And I do think if anyone out there is dealing with other injuries or whatever, you start to learn a little bit about anatomy, understand what muscles do what, how they work together. And so when you're working through your body, you're in class, try to think about what muscles are actually engage and which ones are not. And it's like neuroplasticity, you start to slowly connect with those muscles that are not engaged, just like the weak side of the, the convex uh, scoliosis curve. And pretty soon you're able to contract those long, weak muscles and they can help kind of right the ship, so to speak. There was a wonderful conference in New York at the Rockefeller University. It must be 15 years ago. It's the 150th anniversary of Darwin's book, The Evolution of Emotions in Animals and Man. And just to get to the point, how do you know how you feel? Well, it turns out very often you read how you feel from what you're doing, from the tension of the muscles of your face, or the, whether you're clenching your fist, or whether your jaw is tight, or other parts down lower are, are loose or tight or whatever. And you kind of read how you feel from that. So if you learn more about what your body's all about, you're in a much better position to know how you feel and to have some input into it. So Lauren, I know a lot more research is coming out about the benefits of yoga. From your perspective, how quickly is that evolving? And what are some of the challenges around doing research about the benefits of yoga? Well, it is evolving. And if you look at the last 20 years, the number of studies done on yoga has grown, I'd say exponentially, but it's exponentially, exponentially. Like in 1950, there were five studies. 1960, there were seven studies. And when you get to about the year 1990, it starts on a very steep climb. I mean, if you bought something on the stock market that did this, you'd retire. It's just, it, it, there are hundreds and hundreds of studies going on because yoga, through the good offices of people very seriously committed to it and, and committed to learning why it works. How does it work? What does, what's the magic that makes it do what it does for you? Because it's, it's quite extraordinary what it does in terms of getting you, I, I have to use the word control over yourself. 
and not the kind of control you get by biting your lip and not speaking when you want to say something, though that's part of it. It's control. It's getting, it's getting you to feel the way you want to feel, getting yourself where you want to be. So how do you get a grant? It's tough. It's that the competition is unbelievable. I mean, people from Asia and Europe can apply for American grants and they do. If you were doing a research on yoga, who would you pick? Somebody from Montreal or somebody from Bombay? And there's lots of competition from Montreal and lots of competition from Bombay. So you have to have a very good idea and you have to know how to write a grant. The person who has written the grants I've been most successful with is Algerian. And she's really good at it. And she gets the god darn grants. I don't know how exactly. You have to read the thing and pay attention to it. And, you know, Winston Churchill once defined success as going from failure to failure without losing your enthusiasm. And that's <laughs> all about grants. The first one or two you write, you have a chance, but not a big one. Yeah. So it's harder. You might fund them yourself. Yoga is not expensive to fund. You don't need to buy medicines or equipment. Yep. And so you might do some studies on your own, get them published. And then you've got a much better chance of getting a grant. And that's certainly what I did. I just funded my own. I, I funded some big studies, actually. They weren't expensive. It's not that. They were a lot of work. Yeah. And that's what you have to do. Yeah. So you've done a lot of studies around arthritis, osteoporosis. So this podcast is really targeted at guys sort of midlife. I mean, there's, there's the listeners kind of, there's a broad subset of listeners. But when I create this podcast, it's really to help get guys in midlife into yoga so they have a great second half. What's your advice or perspective on how yoga can help with things like back pain, arthritis, and osteoporosis? Yeah, yoga has given a black eye, if you ask me, in the studies about yoga. They are not as good as, as they should be, the studies of yoga and back pain. That's my specialty. Mm -hmm. my, my website is sciatica.org. You know, that's what I do more than anything else. And the trouble with it is they've lumped all back pain together. And they said, well, is there yoga for back pain? Which is something like saying... Is there a medicine for infection? Well, it depends on what the infection is. Where is it? How long have you had it? And what are the germs? And it's the same with back pain. So what I've done is I've isolated the seven main causes of back pain that account for more than 90% of all the back pain injuries. Then found yoga that makes sense for each of them and had, I must say, in all modesty, <laughs> fantastic success. It really works. And you don't have to go under the surgeon's knife and you don't have to take medicines that have all kinds of known and unknown side effects. And you don't have to cease and desist from whatever it is you love to do. You just have to do the yoga. Not that we always work. I mean, I've sent like for piriformis syndrome, I probably sent 200 people failures of mine to surgery. And I look at them and they're, they're the surgeon isn't much better than I am. In fact, he's worse than I am. But I bear in mind that the surgery also includes all the cases that I've misdiagnosed. So that over which he has no control, he's just sent the patient. My experience about back pain is it feels like one place in one spot, but it's like the entire mesh and a network of your muscles and how you deal with stress, much like John Sarnow pointed out in his book. But when you do more yoga, you slowly get to work through everything and you eventually will start having more agency and control and a little bit of awareness around what is that injury and spot that's bothering you. And then you have a better sense for how to try to manage or avoid some of that pain. Of course, other things need surgery, but in general, when somebody's having just a lot of chronic discomfort with their muscles, it's the whole system. 
So it's true. I had dinner with John Sarno years ago. And when I had dinner with me, his big concern was, how does what I do work? He knew it worked. He didn't know how it worked. And what they're discovering now, it's sort of the big topic, topic up at Harvard and other places too. Uh, for example, bone muscle crosstalk. They've discovered that just about every organ in the body is also an endocrine organ. The gut not only secretes into the, the space where the food goes, it also secretes greatly into the general circulation. And there are myriad small molecules and big molecules that go back and forth traversing the space. Some are exosomes, some are regular old-fashioned hormones, paracrine, so much. We are so much more complex than we give ourselves credit for. And back pain, probably we have been evolving for at least a billion years. How long have we stood on two legs? Maybe 10,000. So how have we adapted to that? The answer is we really haven't adapted. Our sacroiliac joints are meant for someone who walks on four legs. The same with our uh, rotator cuffs. For people that swing their arms from the, from the ground up a few inches and back a few inches. But it turns out that the bones and the muscles and the fat, all part of the same analog in your embryo, and other parts too, it's all mediated by the thalamus, the basal ganglia, the very heart of the brain. If, there, if you believe in the soul, this would be a likely spot to lodge it. Hmm. And the center of learned fear and anxiety. Right. And that may be what Mr. Dr. Sarno was looking for. It certainly is what's going on with yoga. This chronic sense of anxiety creates sort of an inflammation and a pollution in the body at a cellular level. And it affects the immune system in a very powerful way, not just through the known hormones, which are few in number, like ancients who only knew about four or five planets. There are billions of stars, and there are probably a, a very great number of these hormones that come out of the liver, the pancreas, the spleen, the lungs, you name it. And the point here is that what brings the yoga of the body together with yoga in meditation for the soul, what brings those together is in part what they're looking at right now, this crosstalk. It's such an involved and reciprocal communication that they liken it to a conversation. They call it crosstalk. And that's what's going on in the thalamus, the regulation, for example, in osteoporosis, what makes certain exercises at certain times of day and under certain circumstances build bone and other times you lo you're losing bone. Well, that is all organized, regulated, and monitored by the thalamus. Right at the center of the mind-body connection. Yeah, yeah. So Lauren, as we look to close here, what is your advice for guys listening who are at midlife, who are starting to see changes in their body and know that this particular body they need for the entire second half of their life? I think something Mr. Iyengar said to me last time I talked to him, I said, if this is the last time you see me, and it was, what would you say? And he, to his everlasting credit, he thought about it for a minute. He said, you only rent your body. And what he meant by that is, don't feel like you own it, like it's you somehow. You're just passing through. This body and all the molecules in it are not really yours. You don't own them. You just happen to be there for the time being. You're renting. You can take care of your body like a respectful tenant would in a house. If it gets dirty, you can clean it. And treat your body as a, a sacred part of the universe, because it is. And then I think that's the best advice I can give, is to honor it. You've got a hundred-year lease on your body. Yeah, exactly. Take care of it. 
Yeah, but there's a great landlord, and that great landlord is time. So that's my best advice. I mean, to be a little more practical, there's wonderful yoga out there. So that's my best advice to you. I've never found anything that compares in any way with yoga. Well, Lauren, well said and spot on. It's been great catching up with you today. I know that we just only the tip of the iceberg on the stuff we could have talked about. I'm perfectly ready to do this again. You're good. I appreciate it. I'd love to talk to you again. Thank you very much. So have a great weekend. And thanks again for your time. Mm -hmm. My pleasure, really. So I really enjoyed that conversation with Lauren. We're going to have Dr. Fishman back someday to speak to the research and ways that yoga can help not only with back pain, but also osteoporosis and arthritis. And I know what you're thinking. Those are two old guy topics, but they really aren't because he's found in his research that yoga is the perfect exercise for applying the right amount of stress to bones and joints for good long-term bone health. And if you start a practice now in your midlife, late 30s, 40s, early 50s, you can set yourself up for having great health down the road because for some of us out there, one or two of those bone conditions are going to be at our doorstep. So don't wait for that moment. Roll out your yoga mat and start your exploring and facilitate some of that bone muscle crosstalk.